Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of, of Mark in the 15th chapter. And while you're doing that, I would invite you to take out uh, your core guide. So if there's anything that you would like to jot down and remember to discuss with your core group this week, uh, you can do so. Uh, if you're watching online, you can download it or just grab a piece of paper and a pen and uh, take some notes. Uh, we are in week four of our Words from a Friend series. Uh, the seven words that Jesus uh, spoke from the cross, we find that three of those words are recorded in the Gospel of John, uh, three of them are recorded in the Gospel of Luke, <clears throat> and the seventh one, uh, both Matthew and Mark uh, record the words that we will read today. Uh, and so the seventh word uh, is found in the Gospel of, of Matthew and Mark. The first word that we examined from the cross was, was the word forgiveness. When Jesus spoke, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then we moved from forgiveness to, to talk about heaven, paradise. When one of the criminals who was crucified right next to Jesus, uh, he recognized uh, his sin and his guilt and he said, uh, Jesus, re remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And last week we, we talked a little bit about community. When Jesus spoke from the cross. He, he recognized that his mom was standing there, and, and he recognized that uh, the disciple whom he loved was right there. And, and, and he spoke a word to both of them, and he joined them together in community. He spoke the first church into existence while he was hanging there on the cross. And today we, we come to the word uh, rejection. It's a heavy word. We've had the word forgiveness behind me. We've had the word heaven behind me and community last week, and now we're confronted with this word rejection. It's the only word that Matthew and Mark deem worthy of putting in their gospel accounts. It's, it's a disturbing word. It's a, this statement from Jesus is, is kind of a mystery for us. It's powerfully haunting when we ponder it and think about it. Rejection. It's, it's really a word of sheer and utter darkness. It's one, though, that I think accurately reflects the, the horrific experience that Jesus was enduring. He felt abandonment and rejection. And that's where we enter our story today. Would you stand as we read from Mark chapter 15? In the crucifixion accounts, because we hear them year after year, sometimes we have the habit of, of, of maybe speeding up our reading, reading a little bit quicker than we may other passages because we know how it turns out. But as we read today, I'm going to read maybe intentionally a little bit slower, and I'm going to start a little bit earlier than our specific text today because I want us to hear this story with, 
fresh ears, to let these words fall upon us that we may ponder them. So starting in verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down off that cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. I remember, uh, I think it was third, perhaps fourth grade, uh, when we would go outside at recess time, and we would, you know, get ready to play whatever game was for the day. Uh, usually it was like tag football or, or something like that. And I remember on the playground there was a chain-link fence, and, and somehow the fifth graders always had a couple captains for teams already ready to go, 
And so the fifth graders somehow would make it out to the playground first, and, and they would be ready to choose up sides for the sporting event. So there we were. We'd all line up side by side by side along that chain link fence, just waiting to have our name called out to come join a particular team. And I remember standing there hoping that I wouldn't be the last one picked. And I remember the, the relief that I felt once, once I heard my name was called out, Dave, come be part of our team. And it was really painful to watch when it got down to the end where the leftovers were and, and to hear the argument between the team captains, no, you take him, no, I don't want him, I'll take her over here, you can have him. Have you ever experienced that? I, I remember feeling sorry for the last kids left along the fence. But did I speak up or do anything about it? No. I didn't. I remember this kid in my junior high class. He, he was kind of a goofy-looking junior high boy, but mo aren't most junior high boys, don't they go through the, kind of an awkward stage? So this wasn't abnormal. But anyway, uh, he was often referred, I think his name was Bill, I, I think. Uh, but most people referred to him as Boxcar Willie to tease him, to make fun of him. But most of the time, we didn't even say Boxcar Willie. We just called him Box. Why? I, I have no idea to this day why we called him Box. I wish that I could say that I stood up and defended him. I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, I had my own issues to deal with. My, my head size hadn't caught up with my ear size yet. And, and I wore glasses, and you know what they say about a guy who wears glasses? Geek, four eyes. And you know the, the standard comeback to the four eyes comment, well, four eyes is better than two. Well, that just that doesn't quite cut it. You know it's a stretch, but that's the best thing that you can come up with. You know, when they say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's the biggest lie on the face of the planet. Words cut deep, don't they? See, it's easy to get caught up with the crowd and join in and heap on, especially if you've ever been picked on. When somebody else is getting picked on and you have the opportunity to pile on somebody else, we join right in. Sometimes we don't even realize what we're saying, and, and what we're doing. We don't realize the damage that we're causing. We, we, don't, we don't realize that we are defeating and demoralizing somebody else with our words. So here we are, high-fiving each other because of the cool insult that we came up with, all the while ignoring that it's kicking somebody else to the curb, punching them in the gut, not considering their feelings or how they may take it. 
In all this, we tend to leave people abandoned and alone. I remember in 2005, we were living in the Chicago area. The Chicago White Sox made the playoffs. And I had the privilege of going to the first home playoff game that Chicago had had in quite a number of years. They were playing the, the Boston Red Sox. And I remember being part of that crowd. There was already animosity between the two teams. So the stadium was emotionally charged. It was a playoff game, the first in a number of years. Everybody was excited and ready to go. The pitcher that the Red Sox trotted out to the mound, his name was Matt Clement. And he had the, at this time, unfortunate privilege of having pitched for the Chicago Cubs earlier in his career. And there's, if, you're, if you know anything about Chicago sports, White Sox fans and Cubs fans don't really see eye to eye. They don't get along. And when the two teams play together, there's usually brawls in the bleachers. And so not only was this the first playoff game and, and the hated Red Sox, but now they're taking a former Cub and putting him out on the mound. This Matt, he, he was kind of stacked against him to start with. The White Sox scored five runs in the first inning. Matt only made it three innings into the game, three and a third, I think, if I remember accurately. He gave up something like eight runs off of seven hits, three of which were home runs. They chased him early. And I can imagine the walk from the mound to the dugout seemed like miles because that crowd had turned on him. That crowd was jeering him and throwing insults left and right. And as he left, the whole stadium burst into the song, na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, hey, hey, hey. I added my voice to the chorus. I've never felt a crowd turn on somebody like that and have that much hatred directed to one particular person. The soldiers mocked Jesus. They insulted him. The two criminals, one on each side, well, Mark says that they heckled and ridiculed him. The crowds who were there, they scoffed at him, and, and they, they jeered at him, and, and even those who were passing by on the streets, they joined in to this hatred by throwing insults at him. They spit on him. And heaping insults and, and spitting on a crucified person was part of the entertainment. That's what you did if you were part of this society. When people were crucified, these people uh, were, were like animals. They were treated that way. To insult them and to spit on them was to dehumanize them. You know, when we think about it, we might expect this out of the Romans, the enemies, who were just there to 
to keep order and to do their job. But when we read the gospel accounts, we recognize that most of the people who were there hurling insults at Jesus and spitting on him were were Jewish folk. People he lived in community with. People from the religious system. The scribes. The chief priests. The religious folk joined in this. Some of the most pious people in all of Israel were there leading the charge. You would have thought that all of those years in the Scripture that they would have read something about compassion. But there at the cross, we don't see anything but cruelty and hate. We're given these accounts, and and the Scriptures are here to help us interpret our own lives in light of what we read. So when when we hold this up as a mirror to our own life, we need to ask the question, where am I in the crowd? We can't remove responsibility from ourselves because we find that on occasion we join in with the crowds and with the masses and have no problem hurling insults at other people. See, our selfishness and our pride and our ignorance and our fear, they get in the way and they lead us to do terrible and hurtful things to other human beings. See, we're, we're in the crowd that's gathered around the cross. We're in the crowd of people that are moving in and out of Jerusalem. We're there slinging insults at Jesus. It's really a dark hour for Jesus. He, he's hanging there. He's been left for dead. Death, which is sin's ultimate weapon. And as he's dying, he's taking on the sin of the world. And there we are at the foot of the cross, spitting on him and hurling insults at him. Mark uses the imagery of darkness. He says, darkness came upon the whole land. Metaphorically, it's the dark cloud of evil, Israel's evil, the world's evil, your evil, my evil. See, this darkness, it cut him off from the Father in a way that Jesus had never known. And when we read the Gospels, we come to understand the closeness of the relationship that Jesus shared with Father God. He called him Abba Father, Papa, Daddy. John records this frequently. John 10.30, I and the Father are one, says Jesus. Or over in John 14, if you really know me, you will also know My Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Jesus and the Father are tight. 
when he needs something, when he is spent. At the end of a long day of ministry, oftentimes we see Jesus pulling back and going to commune with the Father. They're close. In the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was arrested, he had been in prayer. And his prayer was this, Abba, Father, Dad, everything is possible with you. Take this cup of suffering from me. Yet, not what, not what I want, but what you will. And even from the cross, Jesus' first word, when he spoke a word of forgiveness to us, he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Yet moments removed from that word, we get the one from today. Jesus refers to God with a different term. Mark says Jesus cried with a loud voice. More literally, he screamed, is what the Greek suggests. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time, the only time in all of the Gospels where Jesus prays to God with any other terminology other than Abba. See, here, in the hour of his greatest desolation, Jesus refers to him simply as God. But it doesn't suggest a loss of faith. He still trusts him as God. But the intimacy of this relationship seems to have been fractured in some way. There's this sense that Jesus can no longer feel the Father's presence. Why have you forsaken me? We sometimes refer to this cry from the cross as the cry of, of dereliction, the cry of abandonment. Forsaken in the Greek uh, is the word that means to abandon, to desert, to leave helpless, to leave something utterly forsaken. See, this is hard for us to imagine, a God that would leave Jesus utterly forsaken. We, we remember scriptures that, that tell us the very opposite. I will never leave you or forsake you. We remember reading in the pages of scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 31, and, and over there in Hebrews chapter 13. But clearly, Jesus senses that somehow, in some way, that he is being forsaken by God. Where are you, Father? Where are you, God? John Wesley, our spiritual forefather, he wrestles with this. And, and of this cry, he, he says Jesus uh, claims God as his God, and yet he still laments his father withdrawing tokens of his love and, and treating him as an enemy while he hung there bearing our sins. See, Jesus faced the consequence of our sin which is death. He died. Sin's ultimate destiny is death, separation from God. If you have your Bibles still opened, uh, turn over to uh, Philippians chapter 2. The great hymn of Christ, 
Paul records these words. He says of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus poured himself out. He, he emptied himself. And, and as he was nearing the point of death, Jesus felt abandoned and forsaken, thrown aside and, and ignored like roadkill, just left there, left alone, left along the side of the road. H have you ever felt like this? Have you ever felt left behind or forgotten? watching the series of kids' movies recently, uh, Madagascar. And, and maybe, if you're familiar with these movies, maybe King Julian had it right. He, he says it best when, when he was feeling hurt and alone in one spot. He says, don't shut me out. It's obvious I'm just an emotional whoopee cushion for you to sit on. I think maybe he has it right. Have you ever felt like that? I, I have. I like bicycle riding, and a lot of bike shops will organize a group bike rides. And some of the rides are advertised as no-drop rides, which means that if you show up for the ride, everybody's going to stay together as a group, and nobody's going to be dropped and left behind. That's nice in theory, but it never happens. There's always somebody who isn't quite up to speed, who gets dropped and left behind. We're humans. We practice leaving people behind. We all leave others behind, and we ourselves are sometimes left beside the road cast off, there we are, feeling alone and abandoned and rejected. Maybe it's being laid off from a job. Uh, I know a man who, who had worked diligently his whole career, but on several occasions had, had been cast aside, corporate restructuring, company buyout, we're so sorry, but your position is no longer available. Good luck. Find another job. Years go by, another corporate buyout. We're going to have to lay you off. And, and as he was getting up in age, it was harder and harder to come by a job. His companies were... They were looking for somebody younger. Oh, you're overqualified was the way that they would pass it off. I know what it was. It was age discrimination. And it left him feeling cast off, alone, rejected, abandoned. I'm no longer good for anything. Or maybe it's the spouse. One day comes home 
And their lover says, you know, I think I need to go. I'm not sure I love you anymore. In fact, I don't know if I ever loved you. That's rejection. That's abandonment. Maybe it's the kids have grown up, moved out of the house, moved away. Maybe it's a retirement facility. You feel isolated. Maybe a rejection letter comes in the mail and you had, you had been applying for a job and it came down to two candidates and they picked the other person. I, I don't know what it is, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that if I kept going, I could touch on every one of our lives. Life moves along and, and you feel like you're left out and you're left behind. We feel like emotional whoopee cushions, like roadkill along the side of all the words that Jesus spoke from the cross, this one may be the one that we identify with the most. For we at times, too, feel rejected and abandoned, forsaken. Sometimes we feel that God is even distanced and removed from ourselves. Sometimes maybe we even think that God may be the source of the problem. God, why did you do this? Why am I in this particular place at this particular time? I don't understand. It feels like you have put us in a place and then removed yourself. Am I talking to you today? It's the question of Job in the pages of our scripture. Why do innocent people suffer it's the question that the psalmist asks over and over and over again. It's the question of, of people in turmoil, trapped in fighting, whose rights seem to have been taken away. It's the question of people in Ukraine right now. It's the question of people up in Oso, Washington right now. Why does something like this happen? It's the question that was on the lips of people who were there and witnessing the 9-11 tragedy at the World Trade Centers. It's the question on the people that experienced the Holocaust. It's the question on the lips of people who find themselves in slavery. People taken off into captivity and exile. It happens today. That's the question on their lips. Why? Why me? Why now? Why God? Why have you left me here? We ask, is this what you intended, God? Jesus wonders this while he's there on the cross. He wonders what, what could have gone so terribly wrong that this is the result of his entire ministry and his faithfulness and obedience to God. Why is it ending like this? question I have is, why does Jesus pray this particular prayer out loud? We talked a few weeks ago about how difficult it would be to gain a breath to speak a word. When, when you're 
hanging there dying on a cross, you end up dying from asphyxiation, loss of breath. And to take a deep breath, one would have to pull themselves up by the nails that were pinning them to the wood or push up on the nail that protruded through their ankles. It would have been terribly painful to muster up enough breath to speak, let alone cry, scream out loud like it's reported. Why does Jesus choose to say this out loud? It's a prayer directly to God. He, he could have prayed that prayer in his heart and in his mind. He could have whispered it. Why does he choose to speak it out loud? It's because I think he wants us to hear it. It's recorded for us for a purpose. There's three things that I want you to consider in relation to this cry of dereliction. And the first thing is that Jesus knows our pain. Dennis Kinlaw tells a story about a, a man, and I think he was from North Carolina. And uh, he was studying to be a doctor, and he felt a call into ministry. And so he finished up his studying, and, and he got his doctor. Uh, doctorate degree, and, and then he went on, and he, before he went to the mission field, he got two doctorates in theology. And, and so after he has finished all of this schooling, he and his, his pregnant wife, they go off into this remote part of Africa. And for three or four years, on a weekly basis, he and his wife uh, and, and his, his newly born child, they gather for worship every week. Three or four years have gone by their faithful worship, and they have been the only three people in attendance. None of the native African population from the village in which they lived would ever come and, and join in and participate in worship. But yet, they remain faithful. Kinlaw recalls that their, their young son came down with a deadly illness and passed away. So this man uh, took his son out to bury him, dug a, a ditch, placed his body in there. and He was all by himself except for one, one man from the village came with him to keep him company. And he found himself overcome with grief. And as he was, as he was finishing uh, putting the dirt in the hole on top of his boy, he, he just was overcome with grief and he buried his face down in the dirt. And he sobbed and he cried. An African man, he bent over and he, he picked the man's head up by his hair and he looked him in the eyes and put his head down. And he returned to the village. And he told everybody in the village, the man cries like we do. The next Sunday, the church was packed. Everybody in the village turned out. He was one of us. Was what they needed to see. Jesus knows our pain. Jesus is one of us in every way. He shared in the depth of our suffering. 
mentally, emotionally, physically. He was perfect, innocent, sinless, yet he was abandoned to the fate of a sinner. In Jesus' darkest hour, he bore the sins of humanity. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that that God made him who knew no sin, he made him sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Somebody who knew no sin took on sin. That's a mystery that we may never fully comprehend. And at this dark moment, he screams out to God. See, we can pray to Jesus in our dark moments because he knows what we're experiencing and what we're feeling. We can pray to Jesus because he sympathizes with us. He he reminds us that God will be faithful. I I went on a, a missions trip when I was in high school and We visited the concentration camp Dachau, which is a really powerful, moving experience. And I remember reading or or hearing in one of the films a a story um, about an escape attempt. And I remember as this story went that there was an escape attempt and to retaliate and to send a message and warning, the, the, the Nazi guards chose 12 young men to hang in public. And they gathered the whole concentration camp. Everybody who was part of that camp, they gathered around the gallows when they hung these young men. Silence fell over the whole camp. But the silence was pierced with a a single voice that just yelled out, Where's your God now? Hush. Silence again fell over the camp. And there was a second voice who cried out, He's right there on the gallows. That's where our God is. We can point to the cross and say, that's where our God is. See, Jesus' derelict, cast-off, abandoned condition is a direct result of him identifying himself with our sin. Maybe you wonder where God is in your circumstance. The answer is found in this fourth word from the cross. He's right there with you is the answer. God saves us in a really complex way, and we don't always understand the way in which God chooses to be with us. Will Williman, he says, the kind of God we've got is one who does not always work the world to our benefit. The kind of God who, when it gets dark, doesn't immediately switch on the lights, but rather comes and hangs out with us on the cross, in the dark, and lets us in on the most intimate conversations within the very heart of the Trinity. Jesus knows our pain. The second thing is that Jesus gives us a vocabulary to talk to God with. Jesus' words of abandonment, 
even when he is doubting to some degree, are, are somewhat shocking. Well, we don't expect words like this to come from the mouth of Jesus, the Son of God. With these troubling words, we're, we're privy to this conversation deep within the Trinity, and, and we wrestle with them because we're not supposed to talk to God like this, right? I, I remember thinking for many years of my life that to, to shake your fists at God in frustration and in anger was somehow some kind of a sin, and you just didn't do that. You didn't voice that kind of angst and hurt and agony to God. And if you did that, somehow somehow you, you just get the picture that we're not good enough at believing, or we just need more faith. See, I think in some ways the Christian church has neglected a huge part of the scriptures that we have that deal with lament and agony and anguish. It's okay to ask God why. This word from Jesus on the cross shows us that God is big enough to handle language like this. He, he doesn't reject our words of deep anguish and frustration and confusion. See, in the time of Jesus' deepest need, he didn't turn away from God and, and isolate himself. He entered into conversation with him. And sometimes as humans, I think we do the opposite. When we feel like God is distant, we say, okay, then I'm going to be distant. And we turn in, inwards to ourselves. And we stop praying. We stop reading the word. We, we, we take steps towards isolation instead of steps towards communion with God through prayer. If we listen to Jesus, he gives us a vocabulary to talk to God during the most difficult and challenging times. See, the words that Jesus spoke from the cross here, they're a direct uh, quote from uh, Psalm chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 22. It's, it reads a couple of verses like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the Jesus quote. Where, why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Does that sound like the crucifixion scene? See, Jesus turned to words that were deep within him. This is a psalm that he had probably memorized as a wee little boy in Sabbath school. It's a psalm that asks the question, God, where are you when I need you most? And Jesus, near death, he recalls 
these words. When he was at a loss, perhaps, of words of his own, he went back to his core. He went back to what he had memorized. See, Jesus gives all of us who experience pain and affliction and trouble permission and encouragement to pray this prayer for help. He shows us that true faith includes holding the worst of life up to God for help and deliverance. Hebrews chapter 5, if you flip there, I think it's verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he, has, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. He took these petitions to God, and he knew that God would hear him. He gives us this vocabulary. This prayer of Jesus was both an appeal in the helplessness but it was also a plea for deliverance and a word of praise. He, he, he spoke the words of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 doesn't end in desolation. Psalm 22 does not end in abandonment. The mood changes partway through Psalm 22. Jesus is perhaps praising God from his cross. About the middle of the psalm, verse 19, 20, and 21, we read that the psalmist calls out to God for deliverance. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. And then the mood and the tone change. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. A psalm that started with abandonment. And a cry of rejection, why have you forsaken me, ends in words of praise. See, Jesus, he experiences real agony. And he articulates this agony in terms of Scripture. See, he quoted the first line, and it was in those days... Uh, a practice that you could refer to the entirety of a psalm by just speaking out the first line. And also in those ancient times, when you would find yourself in a set of circumstances, one of the ways to help understand your present circumstance was to look to the past, was to look to the tradition. And the tradition that Jesus turned to were the pages of Scripture that he had memorized. Some people are not convinced that when Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're not convinced that he had the whole psalm in mind. I believe, though, that Jesus was also thinking about how the psalm ended. 
It was the psalm of the righteous sufferer. It began in a cry of desperation and ends with a note of confidence that God would not abandon the psalmist. See, Jesus is on the cross and he's worshiping God. So the third thing I want you to remember is that even, even in this cry, there's curiously a word of hope for us. Perhaps Jesus chose to pray this psalm as he hung there in agony to point not only to his pain and his suffering, but also to his trust and confidence that God would in fact hear and deliver him. These haunting words are curiously filled with hope. To hear these words come from the mouth of Jesus should bring us a measure of comfort. He, he speaks these words from the context of faith and hope. He has every confidence that God, even while he is suffering and experiencing abandonment, that God would be faithful. So when we feel alone and abandoned, we too need to choose to trust. We need to choose to remember that God will not leave us or forsake us, that he will hear our cries and he is right here with us. Jesus recalls a poem of deep faith that beyond abandonment lies redemption and rescue and salvation. And exactly what that looked like, Jesus probably did not know. But he trusted. Jesus' unswerving obedience and his unfathomable love led him to suffering and death for the forgiveness of our sin. And this means that in the words of, of Paul back over in Philippians chapter 2, in that, that glorious Christ hymn, that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. People of God said, Amen. Amen.